0: Welcome to Disciple Making Over Lunch, a podcast discussing the ideas and practices of making disciples of Jesus. We believe the best conversations happen over food. So grab your lunch and join us as we discuss how to have and help others have a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. This is Disciple Making Over Lunch.
1: And welcome to Disciple Making Over Lunch. My name is Danish House. We believe the best conversations happen over food. So grab your lunch and let's have a conversation about making disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm here with PJ Boganievsky. Hey, thanks for joining us. And Brian French. Hey, everybody. Now, we hope you enjoy uh, this conversation. This is part one of a conversation that we had with uh, Bill Davis. And and I got to be honest, Danish, I, I,
0: I was a little concerned, I was a little skeptical when you first suggested that we have uh, Bill Davis on to talk about this potential uh, topic. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, disciple making at the end of life. I mean, right. I thought about, OK, so he's going to talk about two things, how to share the gospel. And, I'm you know, that's kind of like, OK, listen, you've got 10 minutes. Do you want to be sure about where you're going in eternity? And and then, (laughs) you know, that's it. And then otherwise. You'll be with me in paradise. Right. (laughs) Right. And you've got 10 minutes to decide. (laughs) Um, And otherwise, besides comforting the family, this seemed like a really tough fit for us to fit into our idea of how do you have? How do you help others have a growing relationship with Jesus? Like, where does it fit in discipleship? But I am really glad. Now that I was able to listen to the interview you guys had, I am really glad you had a chance to talk with our guest.
2: You know, Brian, I felt the same way when we're looking at the potential of talking about disciple making at the end of life. But I really enjoyed chatting with Professor Davis. I mean, it was a great conversation. He had some really great insights and some practical advice about, well, you know, death. And uh, th- I found it incredibly helpful. So Danish, how did you come upon this book and this topic?
1: Yeah, I, I, a couple of years ago, I read a book by a guy named Atul Gawande. It was called Becoming Mortal or Being Mortal. Because it Yeah, it's all about end of life questions and sort of quality of life and, and that sort of thing. And it was a good book. It was very profoundly impactful. It caused me to think a lot about these questions. Um, and I saw uh, recently in World Magazine, um, the world publisher Joel Bells uh, had, uh, did a, a little one-page article on this book, Bill Davis's uh, uh, Departing in Peace, Biblical, disciple, biblical Decision-Making uh, at the End of Life. And um, uh, it sounded to me like a, a book that was taking some of the insights that were in uh, Gawande's book. Uh, and and sort of asking Christian questions about the end of life, and I I thought it was a really powerful thing. And and you know, in my church, we you know most churches, you have a lot of funerals, right? And people uh, going into the hospital and and having to make tough decisions. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to to read some of these questions and work through some of these questions from a Christian framework? And I got the book, and I was not disappointed. I'm excited to be able to share this book and share this interview with Bill Davis with our listeners. All right. Well, let's go to part one of our
2: interview with Bill Davis.
1: Hey, welcome to Disciple Making Over Lunch. And uh, today, PJ and I uh, have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Bill Davis. Uh, Dr. Bill Davis is a professor of philosophy at Covenant College, he's the adjunct professor of systematic theology at Reformed. Theological seminary and is an elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, Presbyterian Church in America, and uh, he's written uh, a book called uh, "Departing in Peace: Biblical Decision Making at the End of Life." Uh, Dr. Davis, welcome to the podcast.
3: It's great to be here.
1: We're delighted to be able to talk to you uh, today. I- I've uh, been really blessed by your book, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to to introduce it to some of our listeners. Yeah, your book. Dr. Davis is, I mean, Bill. Sorry, we said I can call you Bill. Yeah, please do. I'm such a fan. I can call Bill. Bill. (laughs) Bill. Your book is intended to help, intended to help Christians to think about end of life care, Um, and and uh, specifically decisions about what sorts of care. Uh, uh, a Christian might be interested in receiving at the end of life and what sorts of care um, might a Christian decide to end for various reasons? Yeah. What what brought you into thinking about these kinds of things?
3: So uh, 25 years ago, a little more than that, I was, uh, I had taken a philosophy position at a liberal arts college in Northeast Ohio. And the chair of the department came to me and said, the, the local hospital would like to have somebody from our department serve on their ethics committee. They're looking for somebody with expertise in ethics. I was teaching ethics, uh, <laughs> undergraduate ethics. And I said, well, of course, that would be the sort of thing that I would do. That would be an, that would be a good outlet for my training. I have a seminary degree, uh, not an MDiv. <laughs> I have a two-year seminary degree. I have a PhD in Uh, in philosophy and the, my area of specialization is moral epistemology. So how Mm -hmm. we know right from wrong from -hmm. the university of Notre Dame. And so with all of that training, you're really supposed to say, if somebody says we need someone who has training and expertise in this, you probably should say yes. And I really didn't know what I was getting into. So I went to, to, I went to those meetings and the meetings themselves were fascinating first as puzzles, just, These are really hard, and it's it's fairly difficult to find uh, practical. You can cook up hypothetical ethical problems for an ethical, you know, a class on Mm -hmm. practical ethics, but real ones are hard. And so it was fascinating at that level. But then once you once you discover that there are people who are in the middle of those for whom it's not just a puzzle; it's an existential crisis. um, That that made it easily worth the time investment. And then when so I was uh, volunteered mostly by someone else in the first case. And then when I moved to Chattanooga and started at Covenant, it turned out that my the physician uh, early on I got a you know you get a doctor who you're going to see every year to you know tell you how you need to change your life, but you don't want to. Well, he was uh, he was the chair of the ethics committee at the large Catholic hospital in town, and at the first meeting he said. Uh, uh, he told me that he was a chair. I said, well, do you need volunteers? So mm-hmm. in that case, I volunteered. And so that was 20 years ago. And so I've been a volunteer at the local, the big local Catholic hospital for 20 years now. And so that would have been that that doesn't get you to this book, though. It it just gets you to it's really good idea for Christians to go and be involved locally where you can help people make better decisions and especially for better reasons, but there was a pattern that the easily most hospitals, the cases that end up being problems that have to go to an ethics committee. They have to do with matters having to do right around the end of life, almost always with families who are divided. So you have a patient in the in the bed who can't can no longer make decisions Mm -hmm. and may never again be able to make decisions. But then the medical personnel need someone to say we want to continue this or if this happens, we don't want you to do CPR or we don't want you to intubate them <laughs> or yeah. they're already on the ventilator. And the medical staff says, look, this is really doing nothing. They're never going to leave the bed. They're, they're never going to be able to communicate or they might not be able to regain consciousness. They're just, but they will be in the bed for a very long time on a ventilator mm-hmm. if we keep pushing and pulling air in and out of their lungs. So, and
1: that's, I mean, and, and that's not kind necessarily
3: to them. No, it's, it, so it causes distress for the, care, the the medical personnel. It causes professional distress for the doctors who know that this is not that this is not medically required or even indicated because it is adding physical distress with no physical benefit. But it's the people who get the most who, who find that most difficult are the bedside nurses because mm-hmm. they're they're there all the time with the patient who has, they have to keep the cracked and bleeding lips from getting any drier. They they have to deal with the bed sores that are developing, that they have to be painful. Uh, So they're dealing, so they're seeing the results of care that is accomplishing treatment, that is accomplishing nothing. And so they're trying to get the family to see that this is accomplishing nothing. And The worst part about it was the people most likely to the the kind of people most likely to ask for care to go on and on and on and on and on. And I don't mean that they wanted care discontinued. They wanted aggressive treatment to go on and Mm. on forever uh, were people connected to the church Mm. because they thought that because if you're pro-life at the beginning of life, to be pro-life at the end of life meant Mm. that you used all available technology to forestall death cool. and that makes sense at one level really if 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 all you know is that we are in favor of life god considers human life infinitely valuable certainly true but then they extended that to we need to use all the machines
1: every every machine yeah
3: so that's how that's how it became something that i needed to write about because they don't the, the people who are making decisions for those reasons are not going to be impressed with a secular argument right. that because all they hear is it's time to give up. Oh. Right. They don't hear um, that this would be part of walking faithfully with Jesus for the person in, for the person who's in the bed mm-hmm. could decide I'd like this turned off as part of walking faithfully with Jesus. <laughs> they don't hear that. All they hear is the main thing that the family hears is the doctors are tired. Uh, they think this is a waste of money, something, right. None of them are the right reasons, the ones that they think that they're hearing. And that's not the ones that really isn't what the doctors are saying. And so, but to see that case, that sort of case happened more than once a month (laughs) for a decade. Yeah um and so i i got started working on so what would it take to build an argument from scripture up not from i think this is probably medically the best thing how could i build a biblical argument to get to it <laughs> like that's that's not the right direction to go you want to build up so let's start from what the scriptures say about life and about the what death what the bible says about physical death not spiritual death not after death but right what does it say about physical death and especially about clinging to life devoting massive amounts of resources cuz that's what we can do now and so part of it is you're answering questions that the technology at the time the bible was written yeah it, <laughs> uh, it well, and it, and it's one of the things that Uh, surprised me when I got into the research, is how very, very recent all of this is. Mm. Um, All of this being? uh, The the sort of medical Mm -hmm. ability to sustain life after the body has decided, hey, this is not working. So uh, 1964 was the first year that they started requiring CPR be taught in medical school. So- 1964. Like I, I was born in 1960. And so it was in my lifetime that anybody thought that someone whose heart had stopped, you should do something mm. other than uh, look for a morgue. <laughs> and, um, the, what we use for mechanical ventilation now, the, the tube down the throat, that's after that. Mm. And kidney dialysis, those are the big three things you need if your body's trying to shut down. If you can support all three of those, and sometimes that's exactly what you need in order to support the system while it recovers from an infection, um, some kind of dysfunction like a, like a heart valve is uh, significantly compromised. I've learned a lot of medicine along the way, too, <laughs> but I never pretend that I'm that kind of doctor. But I certainly can, I can remember things that doctors have said about it. So all of this has been within my lifetime. And almost all of it happened at exactly the same time that the Supreme Court made abortion legal, mm. which means that at the very same time that the church should be trying to figure out what to do with end of life life, mm. it's all in for right. beginning of right. life life. And so uh, that, that's how it ends up being the sort of thing you don't really talk about because it looks like you're a merchant of death. You're saying uh, there's time when we're going to, we're going to realize that medicine doesn't, it's reached the end of what it can do. Mm. And we're going to, we're going to accept death, even though we could keep that body alive. Mm. Um, Typically the body's kept alive with the person either uh, minimally conscious or less than that. Um, Mm. But certainly not able to carry on anything like Ordinary spiritual life. Mm. Uh, the, one of the few tr- genuinely novel features of the argument of the book is to connect the spiritual delights of this life that, you're, that, you're, that are all taken away when you're in a hospital bed on a ventilator with the machines keeping you alive. You're, yeah. not, you're you are not engaging with God's word. It, even if you're conscious, you're not. Part of a worship service, you're not receiving the sacraments in the ordinary way. Um, Super limitations on what it means to have fellowship or to pray with people. I mean, they can you like probably you have a prayer life when you're in the hospital bed, even when you're unconscious. I think probably you have some kind of prayer life. Not sure sure how that works, Hmm. Uh, but it's dramatically diminished so that uh, what you're looking at is the very best things in life. And those are those things. The word of God, worship.
1: You call them, uh, in the book, you call them spiritual goods. Right. um, Which I I thought was, and I I think I agree with you. That's one of the most powerful parts of the book is asking the question sort of, what are we living for? Right. What is a Christian living for?
3: Right. And so when someone, so you reach a point where you're not going to enjoy any of those goods, or if you do, in an extremely limited way. And yet you're also consuming resources, mm-hmm. your resources, let's, let's say you're paying for everything, which isn't, you know, at some point, not terribly likely, but you're paying for everything. Well, I think that it's permissible for you to say, rather than spending the money to keep me on a ventilator deprived of spiritual goods, I would rather be kept comfortable because mm. the, when the physicians know that the only thing the ventilator doing is delaying your death, Mm-hmm. It's not supporting the recovery of some other system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're paying right now about $50,000 a day. Someone is. Yeah. Yeah. um. Uh, Which you could devote to, I don't know, I'm guessing that PJ's church planting ministry could use four days worth of intensive care money. $200,000 would make a dent in your efforts to plant a church. (laughs) And I think that's a legitimate thing for a believer to do, to say, when I reach the point where I'm never going to regain consciousness or I'm going to stay permanently confused, keep me comfortable, but wean me (laughs) from the ventilator don't start new treatments don't start chemo just because i've got a new cancer um which is not killing it's not going to kill me something else is killing me right What you're going to do is you're going to remove these things that would do nothing more than delay Mm -hmm. your entrance into glory i will tell you that in my own thinking and certainly in the book the the big hole uh, the, the biggest weakness of the book is whether this line of reasoning changes for someone who doesn't know the Lord, hmm. because the person who doesn't know the Lord, you can't tell them, well, you know, uh, yeah. you're going to set, you're going to a better life waiting for There's you. There's a better life waiting for, cause uh, there isn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that part of uh, my whole way of thinking about it was Put to a, a serious test when my mother-in-law who is not a believer died last june and she was not capable of making decisions for herself and so my wife was the one who was making decisions for her so um I th- what the what the law says and what the doctors want is for you to give the answer that that the patient would give to whatever right. question so you have to understand their values if you have to do your best to say what they would say, unless, unless it's unbiblical. Right. And you know, if what they would want is for the doctors and nurses to be shot, you can't do that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, well. even, even if your ornery relative really would want that, you can't do it, but you, yeah. you're you supposed to do what they would choose, but then they don't know what's coming. Yeah. That made it, that makes it, I don't think it changes the, the decisions that you make, but it makes it much more difficult.
1: Most most recently my my brush with this question uh, came with a, a person who attended my church uh, and she attended sort of sporadically but she became gravely ill mm-hmm. and uh, she uh, also was intensely paranoid and she believed that everyone was uh-huh. trying to kill her and uh, and she had no family in the area as far as we knew and she had no she had no real friends and uh, the doctors were looking to me as her pastor as a person to talk to about these end-of-life decisions she was able to talk and she was able to make her wishes known and her wishes were to remain alive as long as possible even Mm -hmm. but she also kind of contrary wish to be free of pain and the idea was if we gave you if we gave you pain relief it could hasten the end of your life. Right. But if we don't give you pain relief, your entire life will be filled with pain. Right. And it was complicated by the fact that she believed that everybody was trying to kill her, including right. me. <laughs> um, so, so this, Whoa. these, uh, these are challenging questions. And how do you, how do you make those decisions on behalf of someone who's paranoid or, or still able to express their, their wishes, but also, uh, intensely paranoid and believing that all the advice that's being given to her is being given by people who want her out of the way. Uh,
3: right. Ah, well, that person- last, that last bit. So she wasn't, it wasn't just paranoia. Some part of it was a rational recognition that there, that there were people who were tired of having her around or was that not true? She just believed no, that she just, yeah, she just always believed oh, it. So she's it. Yeah. Because, um, so the general principle – so this uh, – one of the developments out of the work is I've moved uh, – so the current research is on the Fifth Commandment generally and what does it mean to honor our father and mother mm. when we're adults. When you're children, it's pretty straightforward. Like <laughs> unless, unless they ask you to rob a bank, <laughs> you obey them. And, it, and then there's this – the transition period is interesting all by itself. But when you get to the point where you're an adult – and then, so you honor your parents by listening careful, carefully to their counsel and you show that you heard them. And then when they can't make decisions for themselves anymore, then you have to make the decisions that you honestly believe they would have made. And that means you have to understand them well enough. But often the decisions that, especially if you take the way your parents were just before they lost the ability to make decisions, that won't be them at their best that will be them even our own parents more fearful than they had been and with a shorter window of imagination than they had before and so i think a lot of um a lot of what we do when we're helping people make decisions in the hospital is like that you're making decisions for them as they would have in their best self. Yeah. When they, they understood what was happening when they were thinking clearly and when they weren't being overwhelmed by uh, things that weren't connected to reality, like uh, the paranoia that you were describing. Right. So you're making choices for their best version, but sometimes the best version of themselves still values things you don't Mm -hmm. and, Unless they're sinful, you should probably do what they would choose. That's certainly what the law and the hospital wants you to do is to make the choice that they would make. So somebody who says, I want to be kept alive as long as possible. And they're really clear about it. And everything you've ever known about them is that is exactly how they've lived their lives. Mm -hmm. You probably, the hospital's not going to like this at all. And it gets much more complicated when the hot, when you're no longer when the person who's in the bed is no longer able to afford everything mm-hmm. that it takes to live as long as possible. And then it becomes somewhat different. It's not just but but as long as they can pay for it, that's what they that's what they would choose. And you try to do it.
2: Yeah. You know, I, you know, I really appreciate uh, the perspective that you have about like caring for parents, mm-hmm. Uh, what about the the question and the perspective uh, of a pastor walking into a situation in a hospital, where you you don't really know the person well enough to know what they would want to choose in their best case scenario, mm-hmm. and you, the the family is asking you for advice, almost like giving you the opportunity to make the decision for them because they. they it really, in some cases I've had, they, they're almost not able to make the decision because of the mental turmoil they're feeling because of right. the situation.
3: Well, first of all, it's a tremendous blessing to them that you're there yeah. because even if you have no idea how to do it well, it's going to be better for them that they had someone to lean on. And even if, so if all you set out to do is to get them talking, get them talking about what they loved about the person that that, look they're very likely about to lose. You will help them in the grieving process later that they Mm. had this opportunity while the person was still there. uh, You assure them, which uh, uh, everything, all the evidence that we have says that the last sensory modality to go is hearing. Mm. And so you can say that even though they're not able to respond, there is a decent chance that they can still hear us and even make sense. Of what we're saying so they're they're officially comatose my my own grandfather i was 15 when he died no i was 18 when he died Um, my own grandfather had been hostile to the lord his whole life Mm -hmm. and my dad who was a believer had gone to his bedside after a significant heart event And he was unresponsive at the time called comatose. Probably that isn't quite right, but he was unresponsive in the bed. And my dad sat next to him for days, reading scripture, explaining the gospel over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. And an hour before he died, he moved a little. And my dad said, if you can hear me, push my hand. He put his hand against his foot said, if you can hear me, push my hand. (laughs) And he did. Mm. And through yes, no on push or no push. uh, Do you understand that you need, do you understand that you're a sinner in need of a savior? Mm. Yes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And Mm. then, so then he started asking questions where the right answer was no and no push. And so he never regained consciousness, but he did tap out. Will you pray for me? And Prayed that and said, "My confidence is in Jesus and no one else.
2: Mm.
3: Um, please receive me." Wow. And then he died. Well, so you can, uh, I I get choked up thinking about it. Yeah, of course. Um, well, so when you're in the in the room with that family, say first, um, w- there's a decent chance that they can still make some sense of what we're talking about. Will you tell me about them? What did they? Enjoy most. Don't go to what did they value. That that question doesn't make sense. So what did they enjoy doing? Talk about what 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 gave them delight and get them talking about their loved one, and it'll help them tremendously. It'll it'll lower the anxiety level tremendously because the the biggest part of the anxiety is we have no idea how to help, and you've taken them off of what can we do to help, which is nothing. uh, Praying certainly, but there's nothing you can do. You're, you can't help the doctors or nurses really, mm-hmm. but you can show that your understanding of them. And as the pastor who just walked into the room, you will be getting to know, you'll get to know the family for sure, but you'll also get to know the person who's in the bed. You'll, you'll start learning. Oh, they really, they valued, they valued beauty. They gave sacrificially for uh, civic causes or for missions efforts. Right. Um, But but you're not you're not asking the family any specific questions. You're just saying, tell me what they enjoyed doing and you'll get a lot. And this will also give you a way to join their story and say, if they could choose between giving uh, giving money to the hospital or giving money to these causes that they supported their whole lives, what do you suppose they would do? Mm -hmm. And then and then you have to bring the doctors in. And say, what is this accomplishing? Yeah. <laughs> what are we getting? What are we getting for this pain and this uh, frustration and the me- the medicine? So, <laughs> yeah. Can help wh- them.
1: That can be a tremendous uh, blessing to the family. They need somebody to listen to them and they need someone to help them to start talking about the things that mattered in that person's life Mm -hmm. um, that still matter to them um, in in their life. Um, I'm looking at the clock here. I want to make sure we get one more question in before we can end this session with you. Um, uh, one One of the best parts of your book, I think is, uh, your discussion of what makes for an effective treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you get into that idea of, of spiritual goods. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? Like what are the kinds of things that Christians ought to keep in mind for recovery?
3: So who for recovery? Um, so the first thing to say is that that question what, are, what is the goal here is the number one question that the doctors want to talk about, mm-hmm. because in their mind, the goal of care is the sun around which all of their treatment decisions orbit. Mm-hmm. And there's really only two kinds of goals. One is cure. Mm-hmm. That is – which probably is not going to be the complete eradication of whatever this is that has them in the hospital, especially if they're very close to death. You're not going to remove it completely, but you it's its cure to the point that they can go home. Mm. It's not going home. It's, it's going home to resume the activities that matter to you. It's very – it's not likely that you'll go home and, and go back if you were running – two miles a day, you're not, get, you're not going back to that, but you're going back to what mattered to you, which was, uh, to live independently maybe, or to contribute to the household or to go back to the assisted living facility and eat lunch with your friends and play bridge, whatever it is. So, uh, the doctors want, is that what we're aiming for getting you well enough to leave? Or are we aiming to keep you comfortable? Now it may, some of the comfort may be in, uh, a facility that emphasizes palliative care or hospice, uh, but it might be in the hospital. But if, are we aiming to cure? And if we're aiming to cure, there's a fair amount of pain and un- discomfort, and complication, and money that we're willing to devote That's- to res- to to getting you out of the you know to get you restored to the manner of life that you were looking for. But if the goal is comfort, we are not. Go- we're, everything's going to focus on maximizing the activities of your life in a way, and there's still going to be some pain involved, but we're going to, we're going to manage it. And it's going to come at the, you probably are going to die a little sooner, but you'll be comfortable. So, so that's the first thing to ask is what are we trying to do? And so in, in my own advanced directive it says, if the goal, if the goal of care is cure, I want my wife to consult this doctor. (laughs) And if the goal of care is comfort, I want my wife to consult this doctor (laughs) because uh, they're, they're experts at different things. Mm. And, but they, but once you, once you give the medical people the permission to say, Oh, we are going into this project. We know how to do this project. Now, if it's comfort, there's still, effective is going to effectiveness is always relative to some end. Right. So, effective towards cure or effective towards comfort.
1: So, what's what are the distinctly christian ends that treatment is aiming towards?
3: Well, the distinct it, it's going some of that's going to vary from person to person. It's going to depend on what Jesus has given them to do. So, well. some people some people are wealthy and uh, Jesus equipped them with the means to bless people with financial support Mm. they should be thinking about that how does Mm. god want me to use that other people have been have been gifted with time and energy and a certain uh, there's all sorts of different skills some people are very good at at encouraging other people and so from the hospital bed you could even say i would like i would like my comfort plan to be one so we could keep you maximally comfortable by giving you uh, medication that would depress your ability to write a note of encouragement to someone. Mm. You just wouldn't be able to think clearly enough to, to remember what you were doing from the beginning of a sentence to the end. Right. And, but if, if you have a gift of encouragement, you may say I'm willing to be a little less comfortable, physically comfortable so that I can continue that ministry. Mm so that would be a distinctly christian end. Here's another one where you might accept a, a fairly significant amount of discomfort and that is to be reconciled to people that you've wronged. Oh yeah. Um I I have known people who have kept the machines on even though otherwise they wouldn't because they wanted to stay alive long enough for the person that they had wronged to respond to their request for yeah. forgiveness. And 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 I think that's a perfectly legitimate use of the medical ability to extend your life. So seeking reconciliation, uh, being an agent of reconciliation in your family, it does turn out that sometimes families are broken in a way where everybody being called to the bedside of the parent that they loved is, is going to be an opportunity for them to mend wounds and broken relationships. And it'll happen right there. So you might say um, it's going to take two weeks for my family to get off of work and get here. Mm. But I want to stay alive until they get here. Mm. And I think that's that would be that's one of the things that's one of the resources, one of the gifts that God has given you is the family. And Jesus says, do the very best you can with all that I've given you. And that's one of them healing your family would be an excellent use.
1: So you're talking about viewing your life as a stewardship and a stewardship of the gifts that God's given you absolutely and and how do you ma- how do you continue to serve in the role in which God has, has appointed you that role might change right when you're in the hospital but but it uh, are you a- still able to function as a servant of Christ in the in the situation that you're right. in
3: even in this diminished situation
1: I really enjoyed that interview. Uh, It's powerful stuff there. Uh, PJ, as you were listening, as you were part of this interview, what was it that you found most helpful?
2: I think just the thought of us being uh, given permission to talk about death as you know, our culture says, we shouldn't be talking about death, that we, we hold on to life with a firm grasp and we, we, we like don't want to die. But for Christians, we don't need to be afraid of death. We have heaven to look forward to. And it's just a natural part of life. We are going to die. How can we disciple people in that kind of a position, that it, that it's okay to talk about death. It's okay to talk about heaven. It's okay to be able to transfer from all of the things that we saw God doing in this life for the hope of what we're going to see God doing after death.
0: I think for me, uh, the talk about how You can even leverage the last few days as a question of stewardship. So what has Jesus given me to do and asking a Christian who may be uh, on their deathbed uh, and or asking their family what would honor them well uh, in, you know, wealth and time and energy and recognizing that a doctor can only make you uh, cure you to be uh, able to function or make you comfortable and there will be a degree of pain, depending on how you view what God has left for you to do, whether that's I have a little bit of ministry left and I need just a few days in order to finish that up well, or uh, I need a couple of weeks in order to do this. And, you know, for Bill to mention that uh, for many, that's Making reconciliation with enemies, maybe that's making amends within the family and it'll take a couple of weeks for everyone to get there. What I was really impressed in uh, of in that uh, statement was that it's a view that stewardship matters and you could steward the last days that you have, even if you haven't done well In the days leading up to it, you can really steward the rest of your days well, even though you don't have a lot of energy, a lot of strength, uh, and you can ask your doctors to help you do that. I need this amount of time in order to make uh, this my ministry for my remaining days. That, That was really powerful to me, to counsel someone to say use the remaining days of your life as a steward before God? What's the best way to complete what Jesus has for you to do? Danish, how about you? Uh, you uh, obviously have read the book. What impacted you and what he was saying?
1: Uh, Brian, I'm only 47 years old, and I don't think that my death is near. Who knows? You know, we, we don't know. Um, but like you said, I mean, if 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 this book is challenging us to ask questions, how do I use the, re- the remaining days that I have to serve the Lord? That's a, that's a valid question to ask when you're 37, when you're 27, when you're 17, right? Just as much as when you're 87. And so I think that for me, what really struck me is that, that asking questions about What's the purpose of my death is is also very helpful in asking the question of what's what's the purpose of my life? So I think this book is really a helpful book, not just for people who are approaching their deaths, and even not just helpful for pastors wanting to to counsel people who are approaching their death or their families, but also very profoundly helpful for every Christian to ask questions of what is the purpose of my life? I think Bill Davis helps us to ask those questions in from maybe an angle that we haven't thought of before. Um, So uh, that was, for me, really, really powerful. Um, So, hey, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for Disciple Making Over Lunch. It's been great having lunch with you. And this has been part one of our interview with Dr. Bill Davis. Don't miss part two of this interview, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks, or any of our discipleship over lunch podcasts, by subscribing and leaving a comment on the podcast. Uh, We would love to hear from you. We're part of the district disciple making ministry team, the DDMT of the Northeastern District of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, And the DDMT offers support and resources to help equip leaders of children, youth, and adult ministries. You can you can get help from us, you can reach us, you can talk to us at NEDCMA.org. You can look under the Ministries tab there for disciple making. Hey, thanks for so much for joining us. Uh, I'm Danish House. Uh, we'll see you next time.